1: Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jolin, and I'm your host for this episode. I'm here with Dr. Andrew Bickford to discuss his new book, Chemical Heroes, Pharmacological Super Soldiers in the U.S. Military, published by Duke University Press in 2020. The book was named a Choice Magazine 2021 Outstanding Academic Title. Dr. Bickford is an associate professor of anthropology at Georgetown University. He is also the author of Fallen Elites, the Military Other in Post-Unification Germany, and he is the co-author of the Counter-Counterinsurgency Manual, or Notes on Demilitarizing American Society. Thank you, Andy, for joining me to discuss your book.
0: Great. Thanks, Joan. It's
1: great to be here i'd like to start our conversation by asking a bit about you how did you come to be interested in biological and pharmacological interventions in the bodies of soldiers here i'm also curious how you came to write this book and what it means for you
0: okay great thanks um yeah so how did i come to be interested in this i mean this is something you know i talk about at the beginning of chemical heroes um, I was in the military myself. I spent five years in the army on active duty uh, in the 80s, 84, 89. Uh, So that definitely shapes it. Um, And this is something that, it's a project I started a long time ago, actually, uh, in the mid-90s when I first started grad school. And I really just kind of stumbled upon some of this. Uh, I was reading some of Chris Halb's Grey stuff about cyborg cyborg soldiers, um, and then you know i guess that kind of sparked it um and then started looking into some of these these projects um some i was familiar with you know just kind of out of interest right but um i think it was you know reading some of you know the cyborg soldier stuff um and then reading a lot of stuff say in german aesthetics interestingly enough uh that sparked some interest in this um and starting to see these really interesting connections between sort of like the thinking that seemed to be going on behind these projects and what I was reading, say, you know, from, you know, or, you know, Andreas Husson or all these other, you know, folks who are working around these things. Right. Um, and, you know, early ideas of soldiers, right. sort of, and soldiers as men of steel. Right. So, One of the things that I really started thinking about was, you know, what are these, these kind of background thoughts and ideas and imaginations that go into this idea of the super soldier? And then exactly, you know, what exactly is a super soldier? We hear this term, it's banding about, uh, it's in pop culture all the time. Um, We think we know what it is, but then what exactly does that mean? say, for the military that's serious about these things, right? Uh, so that was definitely part of it. Um, and then also just thinking about you know, these questions of soldiering. This is something that I looked at in my first book, In Fallen Elites, you know, sort of like, how are soldiers made? I mean, having gone through the process myself, um, and in many ways, just kind of reflecting back on that, you know, soldiers don't just come out of anywhere, right? I mean, they are it's a really carefully thought out process that states, you know, put into action to make the kinds of soldiers that they want and to figure out the kinds of violence that they want, how it's going to be modulated or used, uh, how it can be turned on, turned off. Um, And so that was definitely something that I thought about as I was writing this as well, right? So in Fallen Elites, I looked at you know how the east german state used politics and gender to make soldiers right and to make men and so in some ways i mean this is is an extension of that right sort of like but in this case thinking about how the us military was using you know science and technology biomedicine to design soldiers and come up with ideas of how it wanted to make soldiers right and use use these sort of like, you know, biomedical technologies to create the kinds of soldiers that it wants, imagines. Um, And so from that, it really then started to kind of, you know, go off in all of these directions, right? I mean, I think as you see in the book, I mean, it kind of, you know, it ramifies in all sorts of ways. Um, And the more I looked and kind of pushing these things back, looking at these early histories, right. And realizing this is something that's actually been around for quite a while. um, You know, in the U S case. Right. Um, So that was really the beginnings of it. Right. I mean, as I said, I mean, this is something I started in the nineties in grad school and then actually thought about doing my dissertation on it and had a number of folks uh, tell me like, you might not want to do this, Uh, no one is probably going to understand it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I set it aside and did work in Germany, did sort of like more traditional field work and anthropology, and then decided to come back to it. So it's something I'd been tracing for God quite a while, 20 years. Um, Okay. Which was interesting to then sit down and write this and have this kind of like long durée view of this, right? Um, So that's some of the things that that went into the, to the making
1: of it and how I was interested in it. And as you talk about in the book, in a sense, you were enhanced as a soldier in the army. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's one thing
0: I wanted to, to push in this as well, just sort of like, what exactly is an enhancement, right? And sort of, you know, what, what do we mean when we talked about enhanced soldiers? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in a, in a weird way, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I was enhanced as well, as all soldiers are, right? I mean, one of the first things done, you know, is a series of vaccinations. And, you know, I can't remember, I think I'd had my head shaved first, I can't remember now, I mean, it's all a little bit blurry. Um, but I remember, you know, standing in a line, and there was a medic on both sides of me, and there's a line of them. And, you know, each one had an auto injector gun, sort of like a hypoderm- hypodermic injector gun. And you'd march up, you had your sleeves rolled up, you'd get a shot in each arm, and you'd move ahead, you'd get another shot. So in the space of a minute, you know, you get like 10, 12 vaccinations. Um, and, you know, it's something that's, that's stuck with me, obviously, right? And I, you know, I thought more about this and it, you know, that's one of the first things that has to be done to a soldier is that sort of, you know, you have to be medically prepared, right? Now, it's an interesting thing to think about a vaccine, a vaccination. Is it, you know, is it protection or is it an enhancement, right? And, you know, and I think some folks do argue that vaccines really aren't necessarily an enhancement per se. But I think if you flip the lens a bit, right, and look at what the military wants through vaccinations you could see it as an enhancement it's a preparation to make you deployable to make you useful right to take you from a civilian that isn't quite ready yet right and we're going to use vaccinations right we're going to use a certain kind of you know biomedical technology to enhance your body right to give you this internal armor uh, that's going to allow that's going to protect you. But the interesting thing about protection is it also is offensive, right? It allows you to engage in combat. It allows you to be deployed. It allows you to go into areas that you might not otherwise be allowed to go into. Right. So, so in that sense, you know, in this, you know, incredibly mundane way, and that's something that I, you know, I try and pick up on in the book as well, sort of like just the importance of understanding these really mundane procedures they're really in many ways sort of like the most important linchpin of any kind of like military performance enhancement, right? It starts with these really, you know, kind of boring things, right? I mean, sort of like, yeah, enhancement or vaccinations, we could consider it just like, well, they are kind of boring in that sense. But if you think about what the military wants from them, then I think they become much more complicated and much more complex. Um, and so that's why I opened the book with that, right? Why I the book with, you know, this other, you know, fictional letter, but then, you know, drawing on my experience of, you know, standing in a parking lot with a hundred other guys, you know, and we're all woozy. Um, and again, anybody who's been through the military has gone through this, right? Um, so it's not special in that sense, but it really is that first moment where the military puts its imprint on your body, right? And not just on your body, but in your body.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the letter that you start the book, your book with, uh, in the prologue. It's this. Uh, it's this letter written by an inventor, super soldier named Super Soldier Bob, <laughs> and the letter is addressed to his parents. It's it's quite remarkable, <laughs> uh, and it, it it discusses his military deployment and his so-called objective force warrior battle dress version three <laughs> can, can you tell me who is bob and what does this letter help us uh understand uh about the u.s military's imagination for the future of combat mm-hmm.
0: right well i mean you know super soldier bob i guess is you know he's every soldier in the future right who's going to be uh Put in this situation, and the letter really is pretty amazing. I mean, I first came across it um, in a report that came out of the Oak Ridge National Laboratory uh, about one of the the uh, the projects they were working on, the Objective Force Warrior program that was going to be the suite of you know internal and external technologies to create a super soldier, and part of it was going to be wearing you know these these enhanced combat suits, right? um and then it was also going to be you know using biomedicines and uh you know enhanced rations for them to be able to wear this stuff right so the letter you know is this really like crystallized moment of seeing how military researchers imagine what they want right sort of like imagine what the super soldier is going to look like and if they can get the technology to work, you know, this is going to be super soldier Bob putting this stuff on and getting ready to be deployed and, you know, writing home about it, which is interesting because they probably wouldn't let him write home in that detail, but, mm-hmm. you know, to get the, you know, get the idea and the image out there, you know, becomes this interesting, you know, letter home to the folks. Right. Um, But it really is just this amazingly kind of concise document of a certain kind of military imagination and design and play and desire at work, right? Um, And so Super Soldier Bob, like I said, is, yeah, I mean, it's anybody who's going to be putting this on. I mean, it's interesting. His name is Bob, right? I mean, nothing
1: against anybody named Bob.
0: It's like, you know, okay, Bob. Um, right. You know, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it could be Jolin, right? Super soldier Jolin. Hey, here you go, right? Um, right. Or Andy. Um, But it's, you know, it just, it details everything that they were trying to imagine that a super soldier or an enhanced soldier would have to have and the kind of technologies, you know, internal and external that they would have to have. Um, The interesting thing as well and I talk about this later in the book, is that, you know, in that report, that objective force war report that came out of Oak Ridge, which this is a part of, they talked about the various research groups that they had mobilized um, to start working on the pro- this, pro- this problem, right, in these projects. And they said that the um, sort of like the mobilizing, so sort of how did they put it? you know, the operative, the operative term for all of the groups would be, was, wouldn't it be cool if dot, dot, dot. So that becomes this prompt of, you know, these, these folks who are these, you know, incredibly talented, you know, military researchers and scientists and technicians sitting in around a room. Well, anything you can think of would that would be cool could go into the super soldier. We just have to see if we can have the technology, right? So so it's, and it's also a commentary on just sort of like how this process works, right? Sort of like the, the brainstorming and the creativity and the imagination that goes into starting this out, right? And then following through with that, right? So if you can imagine it, perhaps it could be done, right? If you can imagine sharks with laser beams, well... <laughs> Maybe we can get there. Right. Like, you know, from, you know, Dr. Evil and Austin powers. Um, so it just, I mean, it, and it also was just this moment of like realizing just the serious play involved in this. Right. I mean, in many ways, the deadly serious play of designing soldiers and coming up with these technologies that then go into the super soldier. Um, so it's, you know, there's, I mean, there's more in this letter, I could probably pull out than I did in the book, right? Because um, mm-hmm. I think it really just speaks to this moment, to the imaginations about the future, um, imagining the threats of the future and how they're going to be countered. And and again, I mean, it's sort of, you know, some of the central themes of the book. How are these threats going to be solved in the body of the soldier who then has to go out and you know, engage these threats, deal with
1: these threats? Mm-hmm. Right, and so there's the imagined future threats. There's certainly that uh, that problem, uh, so to so to speak, that the military is trying to solve. There's also the threat of will and willpower, as you mentioned. And I have to say, here uh, your book really, I think, changed how I think about war and the U.S. military. I hear a lot uh, about the so-called next frontier of war being. Cyberspace or outer space, right it's with space force, command or whatever it's called, being now a real thing. Uh, but you're right, and I'm going to quote you, as warfare evolves and advances, the interior of the soldier, in all its myriad layers, functions and systems, is the last frontier of militarization." unquote. And so I'm wondering, why is this the case? and can you talk to us about the failure of soldiers and their bodies and willpower?
0: Right. No, that's a great question. I mean, and that's something that, you know, as I was working through these documents, and again, I mean, sort of like, you know, 20 years worth of following this stuff and plowing through these documents and, you know, and just kind of realizing that there were these consistent and, you know, persistent themes around, you know, concerns with sort of like, you know, the weakness of the body, right? That the soldiers are, the soldiers are the weak parts of the system. Right. Even though they're the most important part, they're the weakest part. Um, this is something that, you know, military researcher that I talk about, you know, in the sixties, Dr. Marion Salzberger, you know, he talked about, you know, in his project he came up with idiophylaxis and the idiophylactic soldier, that, you know, the component man is the weakest part of the of the system the component man is the one that fails the most often and this is something that comes up again and again that you know soldiers are you know somehow inherently weak right that the human body just isn't up to the task of fighting the kind of war that increases and new technologies you know force the soldier to confront right i mean this is something we see out of world war 1 or you know the civil war in a sense right and then world war 1 You know, it's this, you know, first sort of, you know, hyper-technical war, if you will, Um, you know, with these, you know, insane mass casualties. So how does any body, right, withstand this? And in many ways, the body can't. So how then to come up with ways to change the body to make it more resilient, right, to make it harder, uh, to make it something that isn't going to be the component that breaks down, and I mean, this is something as well, kind of looking back at, you know, these ideas in the early 20th century uh, around willpower, right? And around will. And, you know, thinking about, you know, the writing of this of this German uh, stormtrooper officer, later, you know, Freikorps officer, Anz Jünger, uh, who wrote these, you know, really celebratory books about war right? You know, war is inner experience, storm of steel, uh, thinking about the Italian futurists, uh, you know, Marinetti, uh, a Russian poet, poet, Gamuleev talking, you know, kind of celebrating war and celebrating violence and celebrating the body and war. But there's always this, you know, the body has to be turned into a machine. The body has to be turned into something that's made of steel in order to, counter the threats right counter the violence that they're confronted with and that you know one way to do this is through willpower right sort of like you just are going to tough it out and and that's great and willpower works to an extent but it's unpredictable and you know it's really you can't regulate it right sort of like each individual is really you know that you can't predict sort of like their willpower right sort of like how far it's going to go. And, you know, if militaries are anything, it's about, you know, having a certain kind of standardization of performance, right? A certain kind of predictability, a certain kind of reliability, right? So willpower is good to an extent, but if you could then, you know, make it something that you could implant, right? If you could make it something that you could medically regulate, uh, if you can start to take out the the pure chance of warfare in the sense of the, you know, the breakdown of the, of the person, right. Sort of like, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally, what have you, you know, that can give you an edge, right. And, you know, it's all about having that edge. right? so in that sense, I mean, that's what I'm, I'm trying to get at with, you know, the interior of the body is this sort of last, the last frontier of militarization, you know, uh, you know, as I talk about, you know, Spinoza talks about sort of like, you know, we don't know what the body can do, right? But the military knows what they want a body can do. And they've been able to dream of it. They've been able to imagine it, right? Super Soldier Bob, going back to that letter. I mean, that's, you know, an act of imagination of what they want a soldier to be able to do. Now, do we have the technology to get them to do that, right? You know, we could come up with an exoskeleton, et cetera, et cetera. That's you know, kind of an external technology. But how do we change them internally? right? And that's something where, as there are these incredible advances in biomedicine, genomics, synthetic biology, et cetera, et cetera, it's opening up the interior of the soldier for enhancement, for exploration. Um, And so that's what I'm trying to get at there, right? I mean, you know, I don't think, even though we're in this age where, you know, we're seeing, you know, the advance of drones, right? Sort of like the increasing technology, you know, importance of drones on the battlefield, Um, the increasing importance of AI in the battlefield, uh, space weapons, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I really don't think we're moving away from the importance of the actual human soldier, right? In the equation. And anything that can be done to strengthen the soldier is going to be seen as, you know, militarily, desirable in that sense. Right. So I think, you know, what I'm trying to get at here is that, you know, these new advances in medicine are really going to be the new frontier or are the new frontier of, of militarization and soldier making. Um, And I think there's a Marine Corps general Thomas Haynes, I think I talk about in the book, you know, I think it was, he, you know, he said that, you know, physics was the, you know, the key science of the Cold War, you know, biomedicine, biomedicine, te- biomedical technology, that's going to be the key to warfare, you know, in this century.
1: It, right. And, uh, as you mentioned, scientists and army personnel have been thinking about these skin in solutions, as you call them, uh, for some time, actually. And I'd like to ask you to elaborate a little bit on uh, dr. Marion Sulzberger's project idiophylaxis which I which which was really uh, pretty stunning as well as uh, lieutenant Colonel Robert Riggs soldier of the future army can you can you give us a sense of who these people are what their projects are and what these projects tell us about where we might situate the u.s super us super soldier historically and why it's important to his, uh, situate these 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 creations historically mm-hmm.
0: yeah i mean that and you know these guys were it was pretty fascinating to stumble upon them because i'd never heard of them right i didn't know anything about these guys until you know kind of diving into this and you know was i think pretty lucky to find them right um i don't think anybody had written about salzberger before Um, but Riggs's work in the fifties, uh, the soldier of the future army, uh, he was, I don't know that much about him, sort of like who exactly he was. Right. I mean, I think he was an armor officer who became a liaison officer to the nationalist Chinese army. Right. So he was a virulent anti-communist. I know that, um, and he wrote this this article in Army Magazine, I think it was in 1956, uh, right. The Soldier of the Future Army, where he's just imagining this stuff and he's just kind of, you know, spinning out, you know, a soldier wearing plastic armor and shooting, you know, darts and has, you know, glass grenades. And,
1: I mean, right, anything. he thinks this drawing that's just hysterical.
0: Yeah, <laughs> or exactly. Or you
1: include the drawing in the book, yeah.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the drawing is, you know... I mean, for its time, I think was, you know, pretty, pretty revolutionary. Um, but he seems to be, it's you know, there may be earlier instances, I'm not sure, right? But this seems to be, at least the first one I found, of like, you know, here's an army officer putting out this kind of imagination of, you know, and desire, design of, this science fiction soldier, right? And if you think about sort of, you know, science fiction in the 50s, right? And sort of like this explosion of science fiction and, and the imagination and sort of like, so here we see a militarized version of it. Um, you know, and he, yeah, he came up with like these flying centaurs and Matahari robots and, you know, these nuclear powered planes that would drop these guys. I mean, he really came up with this, you know, this pretty amazing idea of a new type of warfare that was trying to get away from what had happened in World War II, right? Even though World War II was a much more, you know, fluid form of warfare than World War I, he was trying to expand this into this really, you know, complicated kind of 3D battle space with the super soldier being the linchpin, right? I'm not so sure. Well, I mean, Riggs's work comes back, interestingly enough, today, right? I mean, I can talk about that in a minute. Um, I don't really know how much they took his works. It's hard to know how much this was taken seriously, even though it becomes sort of like the, you know, the foundation stone for these later projects. Right. I mean, the, but the guy who seems to really have had a fair amount of influence, interestingly enough, is Marion Salzberger. And, you know, I mean, this is one of those things when you start a project, like you really have no idea where it's going to go. And I really never thought I'd be reading about military dermatology or, you know, <laughs> diving into the life and the work of some military dermatologist, right? But, I mean, that's who Marion Salzberger was. He I mean, was this very famous dermatologist. The uh, Journal Journal of the American Medical Association named him the the dermatologist of the century in the 80s. And he worked for – he was – See, he was originally a World War I Navy pilot. So like one of the first Navy pilots. Um, and that entitled him to be a, a member of something called the Order of Daedalus, um, which okay. is interesting, right? So he's this early naval aviator. Uh, he becomes a doctor, goes to Europe, goes to med school. Uh, World War II comes about. He wrote something like 100 plus secret reports for the Navy, um, I think around medicine, chemical warfare, et cetera. Right. Um, so becomes, you know, this very kind of like deeply situated military doctor in the sixties, he's then named head of, um, army research and development. And then in 1962 gives this talk at West point, um, Uh, call about the idiophylactic soldier. And this is his idea and his call for, excuse me, for a complete rethinking of the soldier where, you know, Riggs is kind of just coming up with all this, you know, kind of external armor, right? Skin out solutions, if you will. Salzberger is really imagining a reconfiguration of the soldier from the inside out because he says the soldier's the weak point and his experiences in the Pacific, dealing with soldiers who have succumbed to disease and illness, um, all sorts of you know skin diseases, et cetera. You know, realizing that it's sort of like you know these kind of like you know, medical conditions, environmental conditions that are gonna you know actually have much more of an impact on the soldier than say combat and wounding, right? So, how do you change the soldier from the inside out? How do you protect the soldier internally? through vaccinations other kinds of forms of medications uh et cetera, et cetera. how do you start this you know worldwide search for every possible pathogen that could be a threat to the soldier and how do you come up with a counter to this and then how do you enhance the soldier to to respond to this right to be resistant to these things um he also even imagined and you know, was hoping to come up with a way of of turning a soldier's skin into a kind of, you know, anti-nuclear armor, right? So that it would be resistant to flash burns, right? So uh, the soldier wouldn't, you know, would be able to continue to fight even in the face of, you know, a nuclear blast. Um, so he really seems to start the ball rolling uh, with this idea of, of rethinking the soldier from the inside out. And, you know, you know, pretty much makes the argument, yeah, I mean, you can have all this add on equipment, you can have all of these you know, external forms of armor, but you really have to armor the soldier, you have to turn the soldier into his or her own kind of body armor, right? And he writes this report called body armor, talking about how the military has this endless supply of body armor and that it's human skin. And how do you turn the human and the human skin into their own, you know, militarily useful kind of armor. Right. Right. Um, You know, and so, you know, as far as it, it sounds, it really becomes, you know, sort of like the, one of these foundational moments in this idea of imagining the super soldier. And it's here that he's really, Interestingly enough, starts talking about the naked soldier, right? Nudity comes up a lot in all of this, even though we're talking about soldiers that might act like machines or look like robots. Or when we think about a super soldier, we think about, you know, Terminator, right? Or Robocop or something like that. But in a lot of this, you know, kind of like military imaginary around these things, nudity and the naked soldier comes up again and again. And it seems to be a way to, assuage any kinds of fears around losing the humanity of the soldier of the soldier, interestingly enough. Right. Um, okay. you know, I mean, it's an odd, it's an odd kind of course that runs through this. Right. But, and it's something I try and talk about in the book, but, you know, Salzberger, Sulz, you know, makes the point that the military needs to internally the arm internally armor. The soldier to such a degree that even if he were to find himself naked on the battlefield he could still operate and fight efficiently so he doesn't need the all, all this stuff right he just needs to be this you know internally armored man of steel right and again this comes back to these these steel metaphors of the 20th century right where you know this is both something the military is thinking about but you also see a sort of you know an industrial production i mean sort of you know the Soviets had their own kind of man of steel, like Stalin means steel, so the man of steel, right? And it was going to be, you know, the the man who was so hardy and resilient and strong that they could withstand the, you know, the stresses of industrial production. But you also see it, you know, as, you know, a kind of idea and imagination and metaphor of the soldier who was so strong and made of steel that even if they're naked, they can survive on the battlefield. They don't need equipment in a sense
1: right right and I want to pick up on the um, this this thread of nudity uh, which I found particularly interesting Uh, in part three of the book you discuss Talos which stands for tactical assault light operator suit it's the U.S. military's 2014 project and it is also referred to as the Iron Man suit uh, because, as you describe, it looks like a proto-man mach- machine. And But what's interesting is even though the, the design has protective wear, wearable armor, as you're talking about this, this, this layer of steel on the outside, its designers continue to talk about the naked soldier and the nude warrior. And so I, I wanted to dig in a little bit deeper into what is significant about nudeness uh with regards to this imagined super soldier um what is the military strategy to respond to what you refer to as the biotechnical and biomedical emasculation of soldiers can you talk a a little bit about that process and that paradox
0: right yeah i mean it's fascinating that this comes up again and again right i mean this is you know one of the more you know to me kind of interesting you know, parts of all this, that you know, this threat of nudity, it, it continues to run through it, and you know, part of it. I mean, I think speaks to even as they're designing this stuff and imagining this stuff, there is a fear of emasculation, right? There is a fear of losing, you know, sort of like what it means to be a soldier, and you know, that soldiering can't just devolve into something that is simply about machines, right? Sort of like we still have to have, you know, the strong male, right? Sort of like the strong man is part of this. And, you know, what signifies strength more than being completely naked on the battlefield, and you're still fighting? I mean, sort of, you know, you're a you're a berserker, right? You're a (laughs) pig who's painted himself blue. And you're just like screaming naked on the battlefield, right? Or, You know, so I think it really speaks to a certain kind of unease around this, right? And a recognition of wanting to enhance humanity, right? Wanting to enhance the soldier, but at the same time, recognizing, you know, what, you know, something's being lost and that, now that doesn't say that they're, you know, this gets into these, you know, part of this project as well is sort of like, you know, trying to think through, and I'm not a bioethicist, right? I mean, I was reading the military bioethics literature on this, right? But, you know, sort of like, you know, the ethics around this, right? Sort of, you know, what are we going to consider ethical in terms of enhancement and militarization of the body? And so, you know, the, the questions around nudity, I mean, I, I think are incredibly complicated, right? And as I said, I mean, they speak to a fear of losing a certain kind of masculine prowess uh, of the soldier being emasculated, but then simultaneously showing and demonstrating that our soldiers are so enhanced and that they're so strong and so capable and powerful that they don't need equipment that they really can just show up on the battlefield naked and still fight and survive and be, you know, successful and victorious. Right. So it becomes this really interesting kind of, you know, kind of like cultural anthropological moment of, you know, thinking about masculinity and the body and technology and medicine um, and myth. I mean, this is something that I try and work through in the book as well, thinking about sort of like how myth is engaged with this. Um, but yeah, the, the nudity stuff is really, is really quite fascinating. And it also, you know, it starts to get into these, you know, sorts of troubling areas, right? Where if you think about, you know, some of the high points of fascist aesthetics deal with, you know, masculinity and nudity, right? And, you know, Arno Breaker, this, you know, Nazi sculptor, you know, sort of like coming up with the sculpture in, what was it, 38, 39, called Readiness, right? Bereitschaft, and it's just this hulking, giant, naked soldier holding a (laughs) sword and has this, like, you know horribly violent look in his its eyes his eyes right you know as the culmination of a certain pinnacle of a kind of military masculinity perhaps somewhat like talos the greek myth of of talos exactly exactly right i mean you know and and that, you know the the talos suit i mean here again i mean we start seeing these kind of you know sort of like harkening harkenings back to you know, to myth, right? And sort of like Talos was this giant um, giant robot, this giant man machine that was powered by the Iker of the gods that, you know, patrolled, the, patrolled Crete to protect it against, you know, pirates. Um, so here's this idea of, you know, calling upon this kind of mythological construct of a man machine and then calling this new, um, you know, this new piece of military technology the Talos suit. Right. Which it becomes interesting sort of like, and what's interesting to me as well. I mean, these are all choices, right? None of this happens in a vacuum. Somebody came up with this, right? I mean, there's this, these interesting moments of, I don't know, like, you know, congealed intentionality, if you want to call it that, right. Where's you know, someone has to sign off on this, right. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. Um, And it becomes an interesting moment of how they're imagining what they're drawing upon the kinds of images they want to project um, you know, the, the kind of propaganda images that they want to project. I mean, cause so much of this is about projecting a certain kind of strength and invincibility. Right. Um, you know? And so, yeah, the Talos suit, I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, you know, that was supposed to be a suit of liquid metal armor that soldiers would get into. And, you know, it would harden on impact if a, you know, a bullet hit it. And, um, a lot of this came from, what was his name? Uh, the head of the seals, Admiral William McRaven. Um, and I think he said, you know, a seal operator had been killed and that's one too many. And so he wanted to come with, come up with, you know, technologies that would protect, you know, seals and other soldiers and operators, you know, in the field. Right. And so, um, the Tala suit, I think, was finally canceled like 2018, 2019, because they couldn't get the, you know, I don't think liquid metal that you can wear really exists, even though there were people going on, you know, I think Fox News saying this will be in the field in the next two years, and um, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, right? But but the interesting thing is, even if this stuff fails, it doesn't really fail. It becomes, the you know, sort of like the building block of the next iteration of something, right? So, you know, we'll just keep, building and building and building upon this. Um, But again, I mean, you know, your question about nudity is a really interesting one, right? And, you know, and Talos, because through all of this, right, through all of these, you know, like, you know, incredibly, you know, advanced projects, right? And sort of like ideas, there continues to be this undercurrent of mythology, right? There continues to be this undercurrent of, I know, call it what you will, maybe an unease, right? Or, you know, calling upon the, you know, I don't know, the mythic past to make sense of or work through or deal with or project power through, you know, these modern technologies, if that makes
1: sense. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what's, what's striking to me is is as you state in the book and as it's pretty clear in the book, your sort of your object of analysis is the imagination is the is the military imagine, imaginary and, more specifically, uh, the sort of preemption and anticipation of what could be. Uh, and here I, I'd like to pick up on a thread that you talk about in the book, uh, which is the complexity of the relationship between the soldier and the state. I'm gonna quote you here, you write, vision and preemption are to find their anchor and expression in the body of the enhanced soldier and help bring such a soldier into being. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about the relationship between the enhanced soldier and the state? Uh, you, You employ the concept onto power That is O-N-T-O, power, for our listeners. And so I'm curious how this this concept of onto power helps us understand the transformation from uh, body of the citizen to soldier to super soldier, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, onto power, that's something that uh, philosopher, theorist, Brian Masumi came up with, right? And uh, it's really sort of, you know, how do we... How do we bring the future into being? Right, sort of like onto you know bringing something into being. Um, so the military is constantly trying to figure out what the next threats are going to be, right? And so it's this constant what if, right? I mean, you know, constant dealing with the and you know the uncertainty of the future. So trying to imagine what's going to happen in the future, right? And then how do you create the technologies in the present to deal with, you know, you know, as Rumsfeld said, the unknown unknowns, right? And that this is something that Brian Masumi in his book, Onto Power, works through, right? You know, how do you take this moment of the unknown unknowns and the known unknowns and all of this and, and these ideas of preemption and anticipation, right? So if we can anticipate the future, perhaps we can preempt it, right? But we have to do that now. So you have to take these things that have never happened. They may never happen, but they possibly could happen. And how do we take all of these kind of like subjunctive moments, if you will, and then make them real in the present, right? So how then do you take all of that? How do you imagine future threats, uh, try and preempt them? How do you come up with the technologies to do this? And then if the soldier really is the most important part of the, of the system, right, of the system of systems. How then do you come up with these biomedical technologies that will counter these possible future threats, but you do it now and you make the technologies now to put it in the soldier now so that if, when the future happens, if the future happens, then the soldier's ready, right? So it's this kind of interesting feedback loop of imagining any possible threat, right? And this is something that Saltzberger was trying to do. He wasn't using, you know, these terms about preemption, anticipation, onto power, et cetera, et cetera. but he was really, you know, trying to imagine all of the possible stressors and threats that could face a soldier and then come up with solutions and embed them in the soldier now, right? So you're taking things that might possibly never happen, but you come up with a solution to it ideally And then you put, you know, you put that in the soldier. That's the skin in solution to these possible future threats. Right. And, you know, if you think about, you know, what a soldier is, right. You know, one thing that a soldier is, is a foreign policy tool. Right. So how are you linking national security and foreign policy to sort of, you know, the molecular life, the molecular regulation of the soldier. Right. So the interior of the soldier becomes this incredibly important realm and sphere and area for thinking about national security problems, right? Because if you have to deploy soldiers, you have to deploy soldiers into areas where, you know, maybe they're going to meet, you know, Ebola, right? Or or something, right? Or now it's monkeypox, right? Um, So you have to just kind of like catalog, think through the future. So really the idea of onto power is I understand that as I use it in here, it's just like making the future real now, Even if the future never happens, you have to make a certain kind of future and a certain imagination of the future real now in order to make soldiers deployable and useful. And then this gets into the idea of readiness, right? And the military is really, you know, that's one of the most important concepts and sort of like driving forces in the military, you know, you have to be ready to fight now. Soldiers have to be ready to go. And if the future, and, and anywhere, exactly, right? Anywhere, I mean, if the world is the battlefield, then they have to be ready to fight anywhere at any time, right now, anywhere in the world, against any kind of threat or stressor. Uh, so how do you start to deal with this, right? How do you start to um, come up with ways to counter these possible future threats. Um, so as I try and work through in the book, I mean, you know, these ideas of preemption, anticipation, uh, you know, making the the future, you know, real now. I think, you know, Masumi talks about sort of like how the future is felt into reality in the present. Um how all of this links to readiness, and then how all of this links to, you know, national security foreign policy military policy et cetera. right so you know which kind of gets back to <clears throat> your question earlier you know why i think that you know this interior militarization is really like the next frontier right because the more we can do with the you know internally in the soldier right the better able the soldier is going to be to fight uh perform in the battlefield you know be ready et cetera, et cetera. Right. But again, I mean, this is, and this is something that, you know, I want to think through, I hopefully think through in the book as well, or get people to think, you know, start thinking through sort of, you know, just, you know, the ethics of it, right. Sort of, you know, ultimately, what do we want from our soldiers and what are we willing to do to them to get it? Right. Um, And I mean, that's something that I think, you know, we do need to be very concerned about, right. I mean, you know, as the military pursues these projects and, you know, whether or not they, you know, some are going to be successful, some are not, it really does kind of open up a lot of questions about, you know, not just the foreign policy realm, right. But just sort of, you know, what are we doing to these soldiers, right? What are we doing to people who have to volunteer for the military, right? That will come back to the military. So all of this start to me, you know, starts to kind of congeal and come together, as we think about, you know, the idea of the super soldier, right?
1: Absolutely. Um, Related to that, something I had uh, really never, I think, considered in thinking about military operations and soldiers was this double bind that you talk about, where enhancement, whatever sort of internal enhancement a soldier may have or, or receive both protects and compels the soldier. And so in what sense, can you talk a little bit about how the, the military issue of the soldier's body is a labor issue, as you say? Mm-hmm.
0: Right, right, right. I mean, what I'm trying to get at there, right? If you think about, I mean, the more the military can enhance the soldier, right? The more the military can protect the soldier and make them deployable, right? I mean, let's put it this way. You know, I don't want to see, you know, nobody wants to see sort of like wounded or dead soldiers, right? You know, and so technologies that can protect them or save them, uh, you know, can be good things, right? Are good things. But do those same technologies at the same time make it more easily for the military to commit soldiers to combat, right? To put soldiers in dangerous situations, right? So maybe these technologies will save the soldier, you know, or protect the soldier now, but sort of like if it keeps, if it can speed up deployments, keep them in combat for longer, um, maybe ultimately, you know, there's a greater chance of the soldier being wounded or killed, right? so i think when i talk about sort of like you know the double-edged nature of this right yes i mean these technologies can and do protect soldiers right they can save lives that's a good thing but can they also then just make the soldiers so much more deployable that they're constantly you know running through two three four deployments right they're always in combat right they're always put into these situations and what's the ultimate effect of that um You know, so thinking about labor then, right? Sort of, you know, these things become a way to get more labor out of the soldier, right? If we think about, you know, combat power, right? We think about, you know, the ability of the soldier just to be in combat continuously, right? Um, As a form of labor, right? Sort of, there are ways to just get more out of the soldier. And that's something that Salzberger talked about, sort of like using idiophylaxis and these internal regulations and modulations of the soldier, and however he's putting it, you know, they could get more work out of the soldiers, right? Sort of, they like could do more labor. And he wasn't even talking about combat in this one, this one situation that he talked about. I mean, they were just able by sort of like better, um, if I can remember exactly what he said, um, you know, sort of like if you can acclimatize soldiers to heat better, you can get them to do more labor in the heat for longer. And they can do better labor and not succumb to the heat as quickly, right? So, yes, it's protecting the soldier, but it's getting more out of the soldier, right? Sort of like you're drawing more out of the soldier. Then, you know, the question then at what point, I mean, can you draw, you can't draw anything more out of the soldier, right? Um, So I think we just have to be very careful about thinking about these things that, you know, on the one hand, yeah, I mean, they, they protect, but they can compel, right? They can force people to do things right or you know they can become a certain kind of monitoring right i mean if you know you have these kind of combat health suits which can you know keep soldiers alive they can monitor you know their hydration levels their heart rate maybe let you know if they've been wounded but you're also surveilling the soldier and keeping an eye on the soldier and knowing you know whether or not they're fighting at that moment right when, you know, if you look at, you know, one of the hallmarks of soldiering, it's always been, well, you don't have to fire your weapon, right? Maybe you don't fight at that point. And so do these health interventions then become a way of, you know, maybe secondarily kind of keeping an eye on the soldier, right? So I think we do have to think these things through, um, you know, in terms of, you know, not just, you know, labor, which I do think it is a labor issue at the end of the day, but also then just sort of like, you know, compulsion, right? Sort of like, what is it going to mean to be a soldier that's constantly monitored, Um, right? I think ultimately what this is, you know, poised to do is to change fundamentally what it means to be a soldier, right? What it means to serve in a military that, you know, can sort of like utilize these technologies, right?
1: And deploy these technologies widely. And as you as you talk about in the book, actually, most of these technologies, if not all of them, are completely speculative. They're all they're uh, almost everything you mentioned is theoretical, except perhaps uh, those the, the two drugs that you talk about at the end, uh, the pharmaceuticals. I mean, um, though, uh, given our time, I don't think we can cover everything in the book as much as I'd like to. Uh, which really does hold a a true depth in the topic, I think. Um, Are there any other points and arguments that you wanted to highlight and feel like we missed in our discussion?
0: Um, I think, you know, I mean, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I mean, I think something, like one of the main goals of this, right, is just, you know, kind of get people to think about what's happening with these technologies, right, and to think about, you know, performance enhancement in general, right? The military is a testing ground for these things, and that—that that if these theoretical theoretical technologies, you know, really t- do come into play, what is that going to mean for not just soldiering, but for all of us, right? Sort of like as we have enhanced veterans coming home, right? What will that mean? How is this going to change how we approach warfare and think about warfare? You know, sort of like not just sort of like at the state level, you know, in terms of politicians or generals, but for us, right? I mean, I think ultimately, what are we going to think is okay to do to soldiers and for soldiers to have to to contend with as they, they go in the military and move through and come out? So I think that's really something that, you know, if I've got a, an aim with this book is to really just kind of you know, get people to start thinking about the, these issues, right? Because I do think, you know, they're closer than we think.
1: Absolutely. and um, And you do mention like uh, eventually a soldier... If that person is not dead, does come home? Uh, and so, what? What then? As you, as you say, what then? Ha- what this enhanced soldier coming back? Well, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very uh, stimulating question. Um, as we wrap up, uh, can you tell us a little bit about anything you might be working on now?
0: Oh gosh, what am I, what am I thinking about working on now? Um, I think I'll still be doing a little more along these lines um i want to write something about salzberger and go back and look at him a little more closely i'm you know pretty interesting obscure guy but you know incredibly important uh maybe a little bit more about robert riggs see what i can find about him but um you know i've got a a project uh an article that i'm wrapping up wrapping up about uh satellites and, and giant squid uh Sounds like a weird connection, but it actually works. It's a talk I gave years ago, so I'm finally taking that AAA paper and doing something with it. Uh, but yeah, just kind of continue, continuing on with some of these, you know, sort of like military performance enhancement you know, technology
1: issues, and you know see where that goes for now. Okay, awesome. Um, well, I'd like to just uh, say that I, I I highly recommend that our listeners try to get their hands on a copy. Of chemical heroes, wherever they might be able to, I I really found like I found that your analysis uh, takes the reader to so many different places, from Achilles to child's play to magic, uh, which makes the book very exciting to read. And you made difficult concepts uh, very accessible, in in my view. Uh, so I really appreciate it. Um, thank you again for joining me. And thank you. This was great. Thanks for having me.